Nothing beats our stories. Welcome to the campfire. Join me, Ben Zoldan, and my guests as we explore all kinds of topics. This platform exists to inspire human spirit. Period, that's it. Nothing's off limits and you're gonna hear from everybody. Thought leaders and non-thought leaders, CEOs and non-CEOs, authors and non-authors. What you're gonna really hear is conversations that matter, that get to the heart of the human condition and stories that inspire. Drew Dudley. I caught Drew's TED Talk a while ago and found it super inspirational. Drew, how do you get 4 million people to watch your talk, man? I have no idea. Um, I put that thing out there in 2010, that TED Talk, uh, because it was TEDx Toronto way back when I think they had five or six TED Talks or TEDx uh, events globally at the time. And ultimately, it got about 10,000 views over the next two years, which I thought was incredible. And the week that I, uh, the week that I actually um, ended up on TED, I was I made a donation. Uh, because it hit 10,000 views. I was like, if it hits 10,000 views, I'll make a $500 donation to the charity of TEDx Toronto's Choice. And the next day after we made the donation to celebrate 10,000, uh, it ended up getting a, I got a call saying, hey, it's going on TED.com. And it had a quarter million by Monday. And I played video games that entire weekend. So how do you get any number of views on your video? Work as hard as you can to make it good and then get a crap load of breaks. And that's really what happened. I did no effort to get that to 5 million views. And that's not to be like, oh, like I didn't have to do anything. It, it was, I got a huge break. Uh, I did a talk I believed was gonna resonate with people, it did. And then it took two years before it took the next step. And that to me is always a lesson I keep remembering is that the thing that sort of blew up my career is something that, you know, it, it was moderately successful until it just hit the right people. And, you know, someone I never met gave me that break. So I don't know how you do it. You work really hard to put eight minutes into six minutes uh, and then you talk too fast and then you just see how it rolls. Did, did you come from the other side of the tracks, not being, feeling empowered, not feeling like a leader, not feeling connected to meaning? Where do you come from? No, I, I, have a, I am a wildly privileged straight white dude born in Canada. Um, I didn't realize the degree of that privilege until probably the last three or four years when I started paying more attention instead of feeling threatened by uh, people pointing, pointing out the degree of, of patriarchy and misogyny that surrounded the world because I, like a lot of men, felt as if that, you know, that was an attack on me personally. And I started to realize that, no, um, pointing out that there are fundamental inequalities in society that are perpetuated by the, the patriarchy doesn't mean that I'm getting blamed for that when it's talked about. It means that we would like people to be aware of it. I was wildly privileged, both parents, uh, together, middle class. Um, you know where it came from, man, is because I was a smart, fat kid. And uh, the only way I got validation was by pleasing teachers. And then I start to realize that as you please the adults around you, you get more attention, uh, you get uh, supposedly a better life, right? So I got attention and awards and grades. And that's where my validation came from, how other people evaluated me. And that made me feel like a leader because you become the editor of the school paper and the captain of the football team and the president of the student union because it all looks good on paper. And where I came from, the person I am now, it evolved, of course. But when I went away to school with straight A's and I had to be on the dean's list and that's, I looked so good on paper. Uh, and the idea of looking good on paper is because you're living your whole life for people you haven't met yet. Right, like you go to high school to get into a good college, or you're told you have to if you want a successful life, it's crock. But, and then you're always trying to impress the uh, admissions counselors for university, then you're trying to impress the grad school counselors for me, and then you're trying to impress the first person who's gonna hire you, and then you're trying to impress there so another person will hire you. A lot of the decisions we make are for people we haven't met yet. And when I met a guy in university named Jason, and he passed away at the age of 23, from stomach cancer and a thousand people showed up for his funeral and I looked around and said man like if I never left the hospital would this many people care and it's tough when your whole life you've been given awards and patted on the back and told you're doing it right to realize that the answer to that was no like not that many people would care and it's because that guy got up every day to serve the people around him every day and I live my life for people who hadn't met yet I hadn't met yet 
And I started to realize that, man, I've been fed a line for all of these years that if I just keep pleasing other people, you're going to get rewarded because you did get some semblance of reward. But my whole life was driven by this list of things you were supposed to do. And I didn't judge myself by how happy I was. I judged myself by how far down the list I was. And what turned me into somebody who wanted to talk about a different approach to leadership is some guy who at his age of 22 looked back and realized, oh, I fucked it all up, right? Like I haven't actually created an identity. I played a character who was going to get rewarded. And that drives me now because I'm so disappointed in that dude. Uh, trust me, I'm disappointed in the new dude too. Uh, he should have quit drinking sooner and he should have uh, addressed you know, the bipolar sooner. But the most disappointed I am in myself is by spending the first 20, 22 years of my life trying to look good on paper instead of trying to actually impact people. And that's where I came from. I came from a really privileged background with you know, everything that you could want and a plan to go and become that guy with the BMW and, and such. And then the death of a young guy opened my eyes to the fact that, man, I look good on paper, but I didn't matter worth a shit. Like my existence, I was writing papers on the world. I was in no way, shape or form engaging with it and doing anything. And that started to change a lot of stuff. All right. Well, I didn't know how to introduce you, but I'll share this with you. So my mother is like uh, into her practice is all about holistic wellness and um, herbal medicine. And she's an acupuncturist. She, I mean, it's just incredible. And we were talking recently about just kind of the whole industry and how there's people that have taken this stuff just way out there. And like, I was asking her like, what's real, what's not real? And the word charlatan came up. And so, yeah, there's a lot of charlatans out there, right? And I, number one, I didn't know what it meant, so I had to Google the word. Yeah, we gotta bring that word back. Yeah, but, but I started to think about that, like not just in her line of work, but like in ours, like everywhere you go, everybody talks about leadership. And I feel like, like in her business, this thing could be abused, it could be overused, it, it, it could become so hollow and shallow and hard to understand, but I'll tell you this, brother, before even meeting you, I caught your little TED Talk and got wind of what you speak about around leadership, and you're no charlatan, so you inspired me, and what was interesting is you did it with like the smallest things, and sometimes it's like the most innocuous ideas or concepts could be the most profound, so... That's the only way I think of introducing you. Why do you, so why do you care so much about leadership? Yeah, well, thanks for not calling me a charlatan. I might be a rogue ragamuffin or scoundrel, but uh, no charlatan, I appreciate that. You know, you know what it was? Um, what got me so interested in talking about leadership was the young people that I worked with and their hesitance to use the term despite these extraordinary things that they were doing. You know, I worked, I ran the leadership development program at U of T on one of their campuses. And these students would raise tons of money, fight for social justice, have a really acute sense of, how they, of their desire to make the world better, and they wouldn't call themselves leaders. And it's because leadership, like so many other things in society, when people achieve it and get into this little club and then label themselves as something more important, they get more money, more power, more influence, and more prestige. And then once you're in this exclusive club, getting those things, it becomes in your best interest to make it more special in the eyes of other people, to make it exclusive. Because if I go around saying, well, everybody is a form of leader, people who have worked to, to make millions of dollars and sold parts of their souls to do it and gone to school for 25 years, that to some of, of them comes as a threat. Because if everybody's a leader, why the hell you know, have I worked so hard? So I became really... I became really upset at the fact that most of the leadership that surrounded me every day came from people who didn't call themselves leaders. And it's because leadership is portrayed as power. And most of the power on the planet comes from, there's a systemic barriers between almost all power on the planet, all sorts of power on the planet, and most of the people on the planet. And we're never going to change things for the better as long as these false barriers are set up between things. And I think that when people feel like leaders, they make better decisions, they make them faster, they're more creative when they make them. We're just educated out of seeing ourselves as leaders. And so I'm not saying everybody should be a CEO or a vice president or wants to be. I'm saying that there is a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. And yeah. it's based on daily behaviors. And one thing I say is, is you talked about 
I focus on the little things. I actually don't. I, th I focus on simple things, uh, but simple doesn't mean little. And, and that's why it fascinates me so much because leadership, like any number of other things in society, is a construct that has been created to make sure the people that have it and have the power and have the benefits that come from it keep it. And so it is by nature exclusionary. And that means it is by nature diminishing to people who don't see themselves as it. And I would rather see that change because the people who have seized the power are kind of dicks. So. Well, it's, yeah, I think you said, it sounded like you said we get leadership knocked out of us. Educated out of us. Um, and let's face it, the education system does uh, beat things out of us sometimes, like repetitively. I don't think anybody intentionally does it. The education system is so powerful and so liberating. We're so fortunate to have it. At the same time, it can be among the most dangerous things in our society because it has these untaught lessons that teachers don't even believe in, but the system reinforces them. And so we get educated out of our leadership by how we're taught it. Like when you want somebody to learn something new, the best way we do it is we give examples of the new concept. And I think we lose sight of the fact that the first example you give somebody to explain a concept not only shapes how they think about it, but it limits how they think about it forever. And yeah. so when our examples are all giants, uh, presidents and scientific groundbreakers and people who conquer empires, when they're all supposedly straight white men, that shapes how people initially think of leadership and your initial shaping of it gets forgotten and you just keep going on that initial concept, but you don't even remember where it comes from. So we need to actually unlearn some of these exclusionary lessons about leadership. As I, I mean, even yesterday, as I was thinking about our conversation today around leadership, like I get scared to talk about it. Um, I, I, I might've told you this, but about a year ago, I hired a branding agency and, and we went through this exercise. It wasn't like some, let's change our image on the website exercise. It was like, fuck, we've, we've been doing this for a while. Like, who are we? Let's check in with who we are. And we did this branding exercise. I had the most incredible um, person, Emma, who owns this branding agency come and did a two day workshop in my house in my living room behind me. And, and it was really an exercise in like inner, it was inner work. Like, who are we? What do we stand for? Where do we come from? What are our stories? It was like, what are going. our values? Yeah, keep going. Right. It wasn't like we were just throwing shit up on the whiteboard. And on the morning of the second day, she goes, I think I know who you guys are. I'm like, okay, what? And she goes, you guys are in the leadership business. And the first thing that came to mind, I was like, ah, you know, I don't know if that feels right. Like, I don't want to be in the leadership business. Never wanted to be in the culture business or the sales enablement business. Like, the thing, and I started to fight her. Dude, I was like, this is, we get into like, how to lean into your fears, how to listen to people, how to tell your stories, how to be vulnerable, how to like tap into who you are, right? And for some reason, I wasn't making the correlation. I was like, we're not in the leadership business, <laughs> right? And, and I was like, dude, why am I fighting this? Like I am, I'm getting like visceral, I'm fighting with her. And it wasn't until later, I was like, it was like at the end of the day, and I don't even think I was being honest with myself at this point, Drew, I was like, there's something holding me back from saying that, from saying the word leadership. And I started to think of the weirdest things. This is literally what I started to think about okay, if I'm in the leadership business, what are people who know me going to say? What are my, what are my family? What are my friends? Literally the most insecure things came up. What are people who went to high, I went to high school with? Are they going to think I was the dude who like dropped out basically. I'm no leader. And then I started to think about, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm in the lean into your fears when shit is scary business. I'm into let's listen. Let's tell our stories. Let's go first business. And I was like, that stuff is a pretty cool definition for a leader. It's just not the definition I've been socialized with. And then I think what I learned from that experience is for me, being able to label it, sure I'm in the leadership business, was literally an exercise in me going, okay, I need to expand my perception of my own potential, of my own possibilities, and be cool with that and not shy away. And that's still a struggle, brother. It's still hard to do. Yeah, I mean, what kind of business are we in? It's always hard when, especially when you're told that you're in a business that you think everybody else is in. 
and you don't and the reason you got into the business is because you saw a hole in you know that market and so you're like oh well i, I don't like how it's being defined i want to go in and change it and then when you hear oh well that's what business you're in you're like well i i didn't like the concept of it but i think mo like but that so that's why i got into it and i don't want to label myself uh with this thing that everybody else is and i fought against that too not so much in leadership <clears throat> but I, i'm i think we're in the ideas business and what i think is hard to let go of is that uh, really your ideas get processed by other people and they decide what it was that was delivered. And I think part of business isn't just figuring out what people want and then giving it to them. And, and I mean, that's how we're taught in school to be successful, figure out what the powerful people want, teacher, professor, boss, and deliver it to them. And what I think really you try to do is to try to figure out how to give people something they didn't know they needed and they didn't know they wanted. So, you know, I ran the leadership development program. I told a story about leadership, so I'm in the leadership business. Uh, maybe what I actually am trying to be in is in the, you know, value-driven uh, decision-making business. It's broadening the idea of leadership. Honestly, in many ways, what we're in is the meaning business. And Patrick, uh, the meaning business. Meaning? Uh, I think Daniel Pink in A Whole New Mind said, uh, when he was looking at entrepreneurship and business in the 21st century, commented that meaning is the new money and what we've got is entire generation in terms of the baby boomers moving into the end of their life and for those of us privileged enough to live in the western world for the first time ever a large portion of people have enough time to sit around that enough money to sit around that enough leisure to sit around and be like what is my purpose here like you're working two jobs you don't have time to think about your purpose but right. now we have entire massive uh, group of people a huge cohort that's spending the last half of their lives trying to figure out why am I here and what is my purpose? And what we're doing is trying to give people meaning in their lives. So are we in the leadership business? Am I a motivational speaker? I don't know, but meaning is the new money. Uh, I didn't realize that, but now that I look back, I'm like, maybe that's why the, the, the talk has resonated. Maybe that's why the business has been so successful is because what we didn't realize we were selling is meaning. And we can help people figure out who, like, who they are, why they matter, and what meaning is. And apparently, there's a desperate search for that. So I think the key is put out your ideas and use whatever word you have to to get people in the door and listening, and then they get to take what they want from it. Right. And so when I finally let go of that idea um, and was like, I offered these ideas and what people do with them. If they want to see it as self-improvement, they want to see it as leadership, they want to see it as somebody else. All right, that's cool. I don't get to decide. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's also people who are craving the other thing, right? Um, you know, authority, um, stature. I mean, here's who I think about as you were talking about meaning. Nathan Winograd. You know who that is? I don't. All right, so he was a dude, just a young guy, went to law school at Stanford, living in San Francisco in the early 2000s, cared about animals, I think volunteered at the Humane Society in San Francisco. And after learning about the atrocities of like how, you know, animal cru cruelty and literally 4 million animals per year at the time were being killed within the first day of being picked up by shelters. 4 million in this country within, I'm sorry, within the first 24 hours. So when they picked up a stray dog within 24 hours, those dogs were being put down. 4 million a year. So he learns about this. This guy had no budget, he had no authority, he had no title, he had no stature, he's just a volunteer in the Humane Society, and he gave a shit. He cared about it, so he decided to do something about it. I think it was like the early 2000s. And he lobbied and he went to city council and got denied, whatever he was trying to do, right? To like not allow, to have kill-free zones. Got denied by city council. 12 months later, goes back to city council. Gets denied, got voted down again. And after, I think it was a year, they passed within a certain sec section of San Francisco a, a kill-free zone, right? And then that spread, and then that spread, and then that spread, and that spread. And now we have all of these nationwide kill-free zones throughout the country. And it all funnels back to Nathan Winogrand with no budget, no title, just somebody who gave a shit, give a shit, gave a shit, and wanted to do something about it. Like, and I think about that because I think about like what we're all faced with right now. It's like, we, if we all give a shit, it's almost like giving a shit doesn't matter anymore. 
It's like, if I give a shit, am I going to get off my ass and go do something? And we have these ripple effects like that to me should be celebrated. And if we were kids, because I didn't get that as leadership to me was I want to drive a BMW, have a big house, have a big job title and have plaques on the wall and be able to fire people, <laughs> be able to serve profits and quarterly, blah, blah, blah. Can I ask you about, you mentioned um, drinking, you mentioned bipolar. Can I ask you to share? Yeah, I mean, um, when you feel like your entire self-worth is constructed by the validation of other people, um, you can feel really insecure. And what happens is uh, when you're insecure, you want to feel the inhibitions go, so you drink. And then when you're drunk, you eat a lot. And then you feel crappy about yourself as you get bigger and now you drink more. So it becomes this endless cycle. And the, what happened was uh, in 2007, I hit a, just a massive depressive uh, section of my life. And I didn't, like I actually uh, created plans to, to die by suicide. And that was just narrowly averted. And then as I started to get the help that I needed, and then what was getting to me or what was impacting me got a name. I could start to, to recognize and, and being diagnosed as, as much as some people think it must be scary to get a, a mental illness diagnosis. What's interesting is that now it has a name and it's like learning about it is like a Quentin Tarantino movie where, uh, where you see the end first and then you can look back once you get to the end and you're like, oh, now it all makes sense. And that's how bipolar works because it's got those two different mental states, depression, which people do commonly at least think they understand and then mania or hypomania which is the opposite end it's a heightened level of, uh, in, of brain engagement insight creativity confidence and that in many ways led to the guy that i was but in 2007 because it does this right but when you're young the baseline of kind of let's say this is meh all right like you don't feel happy you don't feel down so when you're younger it kind of does this and then just you're like oh i'm not excited now but what happens is you get in your 20s, the dip starts to drip below like eh, and starts to become crushing depression. And when that finally got me and I finally went and got help, uh, that's when I discovered in 2007 that the best version of me wasn't this non-sleeping, super creative, driven by uh, hypomania, never sleeping guy. It was the guy who took care of himself. And then in 2013, uh, I was 320, 330 pounds. I decided that I didn't want to die because I loved my job now. I liked my life. I wasn't allowed on a Harry Potter ride and uh, because I was too big. And that broke my heart. So I lost 100 pounds. And, you know, cause that, and that's a constant battle for me, that weight. And then drinking became the last thing that I took on head-to-head -head in 2015. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm in recovery. Um, alcohol, the bipolar, and the food we're all inextricably or in, inexorably linked to one another, creating a cycle. So a lot of what I talk about in my work about how you can stay committed to non-negotiable behaviors every day and those behaviors define your leadership, it all, like it, it came from this collection of personal experiences, whether it's the weight, the mental health, or the physical health, all of those things are made possible by a daily recommitment to certain non-negotiable behaviors. And it doesn't mean I restart every day, but I do recommit every day because yeah. that idea of no matter what else happens today, these things must be non-negotiable are a fundamental part of all three of those battles for me. And I, so I use that to try to talk to people about leadership behaviors. Yeah. Do you remember on this journey, what was the most difficult, the, the most, yeah, the most difficult part of that? Was it, I'll just leave. Yeah. How, how does that land on you? The most difficult part of all of that, I think when you want to get better, you eventually have to come to grips with the fact that there's a reason you need to. And, and I mean, that's part of the, the steps too, right? Is acknowledging the mistakes that you made, trying to make amends for them. But the toughest part of all of it is as I became more aware, not only of how I behaved when I, when I was manic, uh, how I, the self-loathing that led to the weight gain or the way alcohol played a role in destroying relationships and creating really negative moments for other people to, in order to stay motivated to not do that again, you have to stare all of those moments directly in the face. And the hardest part of that and still remains to this day is that 
I still put more weight in what the worst version of me did when I evaluate my life as a whole than I do on the stuff that I, I think and have been told has a positive impact. I think the fact that you can never unlive the damage that you did and you always carry it with you, that's been the hardest part for me. Even though many people have forgiven me, uh, even though I'm very open about um, you know, the damage that was done through that to myself and other people, you can't let it, you can't lose it. Like you can't, that's the hardest part is all the behaviors that were part of it. Getting out of it wasn't nearly as hard as recognizing the reason I needed to. Meaning that you felt crappy about the effects you had on people and, and you hurt people. Yeah. And also just how did I hate myself that much? Um, because ultimately all the pain I caused other people was from self-loathing. Someone once asked me, what is the one belief that has hurt you the most? What one belief you've had in your life has hurt you the most? And it's been the idea that I don't deserve love. Like I don't deserve to be loved. And when you believe that you don't deserve it, you try so hard to earn it. And even when you have, you convince yourself you haven't. Mm. And so for me, the fact that I hated myself that much, and I realized that there might be other people out there who do as well, who are doing the same thing I'm doing, which is ignoring the extraordinary things that you get to do every day and instead dwelling on uh, all the things where you were less than the person you wanted to be. And to me, um, it's really hard. And I think maybe the fact that I come on podcasts and talk about it is by way of, in some ways, yes, trying to let other people know, like, you know what, you can get through this. Your life is not limited by this. But it's also, in some ways, a way of protecting myself so that when uh, people come back and say, you know, these are the, you know, you've been a dick in your life, I can be like, yes, I know, I'm trying to be open about that. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of it too is, is that the harder stuff has happened since, right? Like, and so for me, the fact that I still don't drink, you know, I've been in love once in my life. Uh, it took till I was 38 years old, which again, violates that whole, how the list is supposed to work. Because if at the end of your 20s, you're like, oh, wow, I'm nowhere near marriage. There's a little voice in your head that's like, what's wrong with you? Even though, like, that's made up, right? Um, and marriage, and you know how they're like half of marriages end in divorce? all of them, when you take all of them, but ones that are entered into after 30 or 35, that the rate drops precipitously, right? Um, so there's all these rules about when you're supposed to do things and the rules actually don't work in our, in our best favor. But when I, I, I've been in love once, she died by suicide in 2017. And to be completely honest with you, man, nothing's harder, it's been harder than that. And so like when you think about the drinking and the weight loss and everything, it was so hard. But now when people say how hard was it, it's just, I'm like, eh, it doesn't even compare. Like, who cares? Um, that was so much harder uh, than any of that stuff. But there also comes a peace and, a, and almost a peace and a, a happiness and a calmness and a strength from knowing the worst thing that could ever happen to you has already happened. And so I always try to remember that uh, when we move forward as well. And one of the things I tell people, for everyone listening, first of all, New Year's is a crock. Don't do New Year's. You know what your New Year should be? Pick the worst day of your life and make that your New Year's. Because New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, besides being overhyped, are arbitrary. They're made up, right? Like for most people, they don't know that there were 11 days just removed in the 16th century. Like the, the British government was just like, okay, we're off, we're just gonna take out these 11 days. So like the calendar is arbitrary, but what you should celebrate on New Year's is another year of your life where you have made it. And for me, my New Year's Day is January 17th, because every January 17th represents another year where I have gotten through, where I stayed strong, where I've recovered from the thing that happened on that day. And I think that it's worth celebrating, not celebrating the worst day of our lives, but using it to celebrate every subsequent year that we make it through. And for me, like my most important day in my life isn't the day I had my last drink. It is every January 17th, I take a step back and I'm like, you did it, you did it another year. That's worth celebrating. So don't avoid thinking about the worst day of your life. Recognize that every year that you get past it on the anniversary, man, you're strong and you deserve credit for that. Right, but I don't think we, um, we pay enough attention to the hard stuff. Like right now, everybody talks about, hey, keep your chin up. Or, you know, the five keys to happiness. Practice gratitude. Like I get all that stuff, right? Practice gratitude, have uh, optimism. You know, what are you thankful for right now? 
Um, but I'm wondering if that's like a search for happiness versus a search for like real joy and fulfillment. Like what are the things that are really fulfilling? It almost takes like uh, really coming to grips with everything. All, you know, not just the good stuff, but all the bad stuff. And I'll, I'll share this with you, man. You talked about New Year's, right? Maybe this is why we all mean, we all protect our own status quos. Mine used to be this. My New Year's used to be every Monday morning. Every Monday morning was a New Year's. Because at the end of every week, I would procrastinate and not do the shit I wanted to do. And that could be like just procrastinating on the, you know, doing bills or something, you know, you know, like that. But it could also be a behavior I wanted to confront. I'm not going to deal with it. Then I'm going to go hang out with my boys and drink and have fun or hang out with my, you know, just do the things, you know, that I would find, you know, immediate satisfaction with. And I'd postpone the hard stuff. And that's kind of what we do on January 1st. We postpone it on and go on a diet and we do a fad diet on January 1st because it doesn't get to the core. We don't go to the core. I think what I'm hearing you say is we got to go to the deep stuff within and a lot of that stuff is the hard stuff. And I'm like, I believe this, man. I believe it's like if we could, I just got this text from a friend of mine, somebody I met through my work today and it was about, um, I never knew how to be vulnerable because I was taught not to just kind of wear the mask and uh, once I was able to really tap into my story and like acknowledge who I am, what my story truly is, and I declare it to the world, it, 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 it was uh, my happiness has been tenfold. Mm -hmm. That was like, well, it's happiness and joy doesn't exist as a, a permanent state, it's in moments, right? And so I think the key is to create a life where it's more likely you'll create those moments as opposed to a life that is now happy. Uh, and I, I think that's a, a key piece of it too. I mean, vulnerability is, I think, a really key thing. But, and, and to go back to what you were talking about, about uh, gratitude and, and all of those practices, all of which are effective. Jour By the way, journaling changes everything. I didn't realize, like I'd roll my eyes all the time, same with meditation, until you do it. And then you're like, oh. But one of the things I think that the world does is uh, you hear speakers and people talk about live through gratitude when you walk in the room, you know, lead with heart, open with love. And I think a lot of us judge ourselves if we're not there yet. And, you know, I talk about bipolar and alcoholism and, and uh, suicide and people. So they're like, oh, you're vulnerable. And I'm like, okay, but again, I'm a straight white dude who owns his own company and has financial independence. There are less consequences for me being vulnerable than any other group in society. So I appreciate that. But you know, the biggest vulnerability that I kind of kept hidden for a long time because well i put all that stuff out there so that's as vulnerable as i need to be is this what i wanted to say here i don't have a heart filled with love i don't have a heart filled with gratitude and that's hard to say out loud because i think it disappoints people who have seen your lollipop moment video and your videos and they've seen you on stage where i am trying really hard to lay out a process for making moments of happiness but um, i don't feel this world of love and gratitude inside of me and I judge myself for a long time for that because you have to hide that because I don't want to let people down because they want the motivational, inspirational dude. And so I separated that and I'm like, well, is that really me? And I'm like, I believe everything I say on stage and it works. So what I started to try to be open with people is I, who talk on stage and am paid to talk about creating positive moments, don't feel that when I walk into every room. I don't feel always gratitude. I feel darkness and anger a lot. Um, because of some of the things that have happened in my life and, and there's PTSD and everything. But, so don't judge yourself for that. It's not how you feel inside that defines whether you're a good person or a bad person. It is how you process those feelings and put them out into the world and how they impact other people. So I feel, feel a lot of anger and a lot of resentment sometimes, especially when you're a guy who focuses on leadership and you see what's going on, particularly south of the border, and you get angry and you get frustrated. But, like when your friend asks you, can you help me move? And your first instinct is oh, no, but, and then you judge yourself as a bad person and friend, but yeah. you know what? You showed up with your truck and you helped them move. That's where the leadership lies. So for everybody out there who is like, I'm not there yet. I'm not a good person yet because I don't just feel this inherent peace and joy and harmony and gratitude. It's okay. As long as you don't let that feeling seep out into your behavior. Like a lot of my work is, like they're like, oh, you have this tool about creating lollipop moments and this process to live your values. I'm like, yeah, I need that 
because that process is the ammunition I give my better angels to try to take on my demons because man, my demons are well-funded and heavily armed. And so uh, forgive yourself if you have negative feelings, if you feel bad, if you feel angry, if you don't want to do the right thing right away, because if that feeling then translates into different behavior, that's leadership. Give yourself credit for it. You're a good person. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe I have to believe that because that's what I'm doing. And of course there's some cognitive dissonance there. Yeah. Well, I guess that's going back to saying things are simple. That's simple, but sure ain't easy. Um, yeah. I have, and right now, Greg Stewart wants to, uh, is raising his hand. He wants to share. I know that question. name. Hey, Greg. I have a question about um, purpose and happiness. A lot of people are looking for purpose right now with everything going on. What is the relationship that you think between purpose and happiness? I think that purpose leads to satisfaction. I think purpose leads to self-worth. And I think that uh, that's a big part of, I think purpose leads to taking on challenges and taking on and succeeding at challenges and even failing at them, but seeing constant getting better. I think that leads to self-worth and self-respect. So I don't know if it's purpose that's tied to happiness as much as self-respect is. And I think that having a purpose, and that doesn't mean like some grand life purpose. I mean, like right now, do you have a purpose? Like I have a video project that I just got excited about. And that is my purpose right now is to do the best job at that as possible because then I've gotten better at something. And so that leads when it's done to self-worth. Self-worth and self-respect, I think, lead to uh, happiness or whether at least an absence of um, disrespect for yourself. And so, yeah, man, I, I think searching for purpose in life, a grander purpose, uh, keeps you from paying attention to what you can do today because purpose is such a broad concept. It's like God, right? It's so big that we can't actually get our, our head around it. And so I don't think it's so much purpose tied to happiness. I think purpose is tied to taking on challenges. And I think that when you have a purpose to achieve something, it doesn't have to be for your whole life. I think that when you take on new challenges, when you fail at things, I think it leads to greater uh, semblance of self-respect. So I think people are like, what am I supposed to do right now I think, you know, in some ways, just be like, what do I want to accomplish? And if accomplishing that means spending a week and a half without, getting, without doing work, that is an accomplishment. I talked to someone yesterday about spend four days without your phone. Because when I went away to Yosemite and, and wore this camp outfit last year, um, the, how I felt on the first couple of days is how I felt after I quit drinking. Like I had physical symptoms. That tells you something wrong. Something is wrong. So try that. You know what I mean? Purpose. Yeah is more about self-respect, I think. And your purpose can be tiny little purposes over and over again. And somewhere along the way, you're gonna find some task that you take on that you wanna take on another one like it very quickly. I don't think you find your purpose. I think you work your way into it, if that makes any sense. You know what's coming up for me as you talked about that? I had this mentor, his name was John Scanlon. And he wasn't really a mentor directly, but just I would wanna emulate him. He was the kind of leader that everybody wanted to be around Greg. So like, you know, anybody who just like you're around and they're just like a magnet or like a, yeah. like a, like they're like the star, the sun and it's just like a pool and light. And he would, like, no matter what the situation, people were buying what he was selling. If you were ever stuck, he would unstuck you and he would do it with such grace, right? He wasn't this like leader leader and he was the CEO of this company and I had a conversation with him and it was, um, he was telling me about his life. Greg, and he, he said, here, Ben, let me tell you about my story, where I come from. He goes, I grew up in corporate America as an engineer, right? I was a double E. I become a sales engineer. I was that guy who's always fixing problems. And I career path and I career path. And I kept, you know, getting by and kept getting by. And my hand's doing this right now because I recall the conversation, him doing that, even though he probably wasn't physically doing this. Like his life was like a series of steps on a ladder. Do you ever feel that way? Like I get promoted. Yeah. Then I go to or, or more like one of those winding paths up the with steps. Right. Well, his wasn't like that. He was like, I got here, then to here, then to here, then to here, then a house, then a this, and then some dough, and then a family, and then though he kept saying, I was getting by. I was getting by. I was getting by. And then he stops and he goes, Ben. And then after a while, I realize I couldn't get by anymore. I'll never forget what he said next. He goes, I was about to lose everything. I just felt like I had to take off the mask. 
And when he said that in an instant, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And what was interesting about it was this, guys, and this is what I'm thinking about with fulfillment. And I, I don't know, because I go to sleep in a fetal position every, you know, every once in a while, you know, crying myself to sleep. But I think there was a valuable lesson in that. What he was saying was, like, we all have an opportunity to be able to do this, to be able to live like that. And what he was saying was take off the mask and be who you are. Because there's so many times I need to do this, I should do this, I should do this. Like, I find myself flirting with this. I need that house. I want that car. I want this. I'm supposed to be doing this. He's like, live true to who you are. Now, this is where I started to think about. That was such a profound moment for me. That was like 10 years ago. And here's what I think he was saying. When I learned to take off my mask, I'm now able to have deeper connections with people, more meaningful interactions, almost moments with people, like real moments, real moments become real connections. So I started to explore that shit because homie was like the world's most charismatic guy, but it wasn't like on the outside. You just felt this connection. So when I started to get a dose of that, I was like, whoa, when I take off my mask, other people take off their mask and we have deeper connections with each other. And I was like, every one of those deeper connections for me began this sort of journey on maybe that's the meaning. And I'll tell you why. I'm in the storytelling business. Club. I, I teach that. That's the weirdest thing. In the corporations, in the groups of people, right? And people would always say, well, yeah, you tell stories to sell. Fuck that. That's appealing to the lowest common denominator. They got it backwards because a friend once told me everybody has it backwards. We don't tell stories to sell something. We don't tell, we don't do this to do that. He goes, we sell to tell stories. Hmm. Now think about that. That means you could replace that. We sell, we lead, we engineer, we coach, we product design, we teach, we act, we whatever to do this, which is about connection. And I'm wondering if maybe what John Scanlon was telling me in not so many words is that's what gives us meaning and fulfillment. Um, yeah, I mean, the, sorry, I was gonna say the story is the basic unit of human understanding. Uh, a brilliant guy named James Miscalic told me that and it just, it cut right to my very soul. The story is the basic unit of human understanding. What I think uh, a part of what I do, and, and I, get, I think you too, by, by creating this environment, is that there's a lot of people out there who are either unwilling or unable to tell their stories because they think it's boring, they think it's unimportant, uh, they think it doesn't matter. And the story I like to tell, uh, there's a woman who I met years ago named Allison. And when I met her, she told me the story that her mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and it hit her so hard that she basically gave up right away and wouldn't let her family in, right? She's like, this is my battle, I'm not dragging you down. And so she just shut herself off. You can talk about anything except the cancer. And then she said she was out uh, grocery shopping and dropped an orange and it kind of like rolls down the aisle and a woman picks it up and holds it out to her. And she says, my mom just burst into tears. And of course the woman was like, I'll get you another orange. And uh, finally she, like, sometimes you're dealing with shit and you won't tell your best friends and you won't tell your family, but you meet a complete stranger and the whole story just gushes out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the woman said, turns out she was a breast cancer survivor. And she said, let's go for a coffee. They went for like a four hour coffee. And that woman told Allison's mother her story. And it was a story that when she heard it, Allison heard her story, or Allison's mom heard her story and the other woman's story. The reason we need to share our own stories is not because they're impressive or not because we want to impress people. Uh, I think we got to tell our stories because we don't know what part of our story represents part of another person's. And one of the things I really believe in is that we grow up being taught, if you want to be impressive, make people say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Your story makes people say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. You really want to be a leader, tell your story, because the most powerful gift we can give each other is the ability to say, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. Right. That, that's a gift. I thought I was the only one afraid of that. I thought I was the only one who needed that. I thought I was the only one hiding that. The power of a story isn't in the story. It's in how it connects people to parts of their own. And that to me is why I do what I do because I, I like to tell the stories of other leaders. I, I tell a lollipop story, not so people can be like, oh wow, that guy had a cool moment of leadership. I tell that story so that somebody while they're listening to it immediately thinks of someone in their life who in a moment changed the course of it. And they've never told that person. I tell my stories or in other people's stories to try to connect with individuals. If you're on a stage, if you're in front of people and you're telling a story and it's not about the audience, don't tell the story. 
Right. So here, right. this is the a, content's about the audience. The purpose is for the audience. Yeah. So Greg, stay on here and just whoever, you know, stay on with the conversation, but I have a question from uh, Gene Frost. who's like, how do we get, how do we get the younger generation? How do we invite them in to be leaders in our organization? So let's talk. Well, the thing is, when you say young people, I think we have to understand that once you get to a certain age, it's really hard to unlearn certain things. Also, don't forget that us wanting to do it doesn't mean that uh, the society allows it to happen easily. Power is addictive. And I wish I could, I could tell some stories about like workshops that we do that demonstrate this, that the way that leadership and uh, things are structured is structured to reinforce the way it is. It is incredibly hard, courageous, and true leadership to rise to the top of a system and then look back and say, this system is flawed. Like that, do you understand how difficult it is to rise to the very top, to be rewarded at the top of the system and then be like, yeah, we need to change the system. Nobody does that. Right. So we need to start earlier. We need to um, no longer use the word leader to describe anyone with influence. Um, because right now, people get to a certain level of influence and it doesn't matter if they got there through exploitation and harm and self interest, or if they got there through empowering other people, once they get to a certain level, we call them all leaders. And then we like, well, they're a, they're a bad leader, but you can't argue with their results. All right. You've got your, the most common one is, well, look at Hitler, right? He was an effective leader, but um, no, they're not leaders. They're catalysts for harm. They're influencers for harm but we give them the same title. Kids look at them and see the same title. So we want to invite young people in. We need to start before they hit high school. We need to redefine what leadership means much, much earlier. And one of the things that I think we can reinforce for young people in our organizations, and I think we need to bluntly point this out, is that you will not always be in charge of what you have to do every day, but you will always be in charge of who you are. And I think that what makes millennials bounce around is that people, like we're all looking, I don't like to bounce people into millennials, but we talk younger people. So newer people in the, in the workforce is that they're searching for control over something. Like, don't forget, this is a, a generation that's been handed a climate crisis that they did not create and really has gotten to the point where there's nothing they can do about it. They've gotten to a world where they're saying, if you want access to the best jobs, you have to go to college or university, which you can no longer do without debt for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a lot of power in the hands of, of a young generation now. So they're desperately seeking something they can control. And then to go into a workforce where once again, everyone's like, oh, they're entitled and they want everything for themselves. I'm like, how do you call an, an, um, a generation entitled who was handed this shit sack, right? Like they, they're entitled when they were given like, this debt, this economy, this climate, they're not entitled. They feel powerless and scared. And so the reason I do the work I do and the way that we can all help is we could acknowledge that maybe you don't have the influence with professionally that you want, but reinforce the idea that we have more power over ourselves, our perceptions, and our own behaviors than we're giving ourselves credit for. So and I'm that of, is important. So I'm thinking, and, and Tyler, as I share this, can you uh, see if Jeff Summers, he raised his hand? But what I was thinking of is, um, was it Tam Tamara Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement? So yeah. I, heard, I heard her story behind how she founded that movement. And she had a, a colleague of hers years ago who came to her, a younger woman, came to her in her organization and shared how she was abused, was assaulted in the workplace, sexually assaulted. And in that moment, Tamara is her name, I believe, just kept it quiet and just went. And then it wasn't until later that she felt guilty and she was like, fuck, I should have told her that that happened to me too. That's the story behind me too. So here's somebody who literally was just a colleague of this other woman who just kept it silent and then learned later to, that she actually had a voice. And that voice gave birth to other people's voices. So I feel like these things we can do, I'm wondering if we get to Gene's idea of what do we do to empower younger people? What if we don't stay silent and we speak up for them and give them permission and safety to share theirs? That's what I was thinking. Uh, but Drew, if you wanna close with anything, man, um, the floor is yours. 
Yeah, I think it all, <clears throat> thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to be here. I think we have to bear in mind too that there's a double-edged sword to the authenticity side of things, which is um, that when you are yourself, and this is what holds a lot of us back, is that it is easier now than any point in human history to attack who someone is very safely, you know, from a, from a long, long distance away. And so I think that's the challenge that, that a lot of us are, are dealing with is that when you come out and say, this is who I am, warts and all, that you can take a lot of crap from people online. You can get completely assassinated online uh, without even your knowledge, right? That you just find out later on that there's all this stuff out there. And I think that one of the things that's going to have to happen if we want more authenticity in this world is we've got to stop attacking people when they show their worst parts. We have got to stop allowing ourselves to feel better about ourselves by reveling in the, uh, the destruction of others, by reveling in... I was reading um, a Rolling Stone article about where they talked about the top 50 artists or most influential artists in history, and Bono wrote Elvis Presley's... Um, he wrote Elvis Presley's sort of section of it. And he said, why is it that we want all our heroes to die on a cross of their own making and if they don't, we want our money back. We take great pride in watching the pain of others because it makes us feel good about ourselves. And deep down inside, we know as we're doing it, that that will happen to us and that keeps us from being authentic. We can't just decide that we're gonna drop our masks and be authentic. We have got to stop attacking other people when they do it. And uh, you know who my hero is right now is Dave Chappelle. And Dave Chappelle pisses a lot of people off and I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, but damn it, I would kill to have the courage to not give a crap. And he said it, if you wanna watch anything, watch him get the Mark Twain uh, Prize for American Humor on Netflix. It is such an interesting little documentary they put together as they cut it in with the actual event. But at one point he gets on stage and he says, fuck the game, speak your truth, the money will come. And then Dave, John Stewart, and this is my closing piece, John Stewart got up and did his little tribute. And he said something that this only I heard last week, and it's going to drive my desire for who I want to be for the rest of my life. He said, with Dave Chappelle, I have never met anyone who cares more and gives less of a fuck. And that, to me, is the type of person I could be proud of, which is, I'm going to try really, really, really hard to care and to love and to make the world better for as many people as I can. And I don't want to give a crap about what anybody thinks of me as I do it. Uh, that, that, to revel in the love of the people you have rather than desperately seek the love of other people, I think that that is going to lead to a life of fulfillment. And that, I think, is what I want to be. A guy who cares so much and doesn't give too many fucks. Yeah, this is what I got, take it or leave it. And yeah. that's something that may be simple, but I know it's really hard. Well, brother, I appreciate you a ton and thanks for joining the campfire.